Hey y'all. I know. I missed Black History Month. More than one thing fell through and it, it just didn't happen. But I'm back with something super, super interesting. We spend a lot of time on the show talking about religion, specifically Christianity. It comes up a lot, almost to the point of there being an assumption that if you're talking about black history, God and Christianity have to be central to that story. Well, today we're talking about the book Black Freethinkers, a history of African-American secularism with Professor Christopher Cameron. We'll be looking at black history through the stories and perspectives of those who were skeptical about Christianity in the questioned established religion or even the existence of God himself. But before that, I want to get into this idea of assuming a natural religiosity in black people. That itself has a history. Let's unpack that. So it was first, uh, from what I found, was first articulated by a white Unitarian minister who worked for abolition of slavery and the like. William Ellery Channing in a book, Slavery, talked a bit about the sort of natural religiosity of of African-descended people and of their kind of emotionalism, right? And you see this repeated not only in the writings of, you know, allies like like Channing and and other abolitionists, but also from pro-slavery thinkers during the same time period. Later in the 19th century, you see segregationists talking about the natural religiosity of black people. You even see free thinkers who you would think would want to expand the tent of, you know, what is a minority religious position, atheism and agnosticism. But you see leaders of free thought organizations and and publications saying the same thing, right? That, That black people are too religious their religion is too emotional and ecstatic and all of this. And there's no way that they possess the requisite rationality and logical reasoning skills in order to be candidates for this kind of free thought movement that we're trying to build, right? And this is just repeated all throughout American history. So, so you're right, it, it's, it's come to occupy the place of sort of an assumption about Black culture, about Black communities, that we're uh, all religious, uh, we're all overly religious, right? That we practice a very specific type of religion, one that includes a lot of shouting and, and dancing and catching the Holy Spirit, right? And I found that that's just not necessarily the case, right? We are an incredibly diverse people who, yes, are influenced by African forms that uh, oftentimes encompass uh, a sort of very emotional connection to uh, religious services and ceremonies. But there are plenty of other African Americans throughout history who have opted for different types of religions and different types of churches that didn't necessarily emphasize religious embodiment, displaying religious affections or ideas through your body but instead uh, emphasized more kind of calm practices of religion. So you see Black Catholics, for example, Black Episcopalians, uh, a book I'm writing right now, Black uh, Unitarians and Universalists, uh, and of course those who just rejected all forms of religiosity uh, altogether, which is the main subject of Black Freethinkers. I never considered the idea that assuming religiosity in black people, especially assuming kind of a very emotional 
form of religion was a lot of times in white people an assumption of like black people don't have rational capacity to Mm -hmm. think of anything else. And that's throughout your book, you talk about how as the free thought movement arises, a lot of white people kind of denied that it could exist because they were like, black people don't have the capacity to think anything other than like a kind of blind belief in God. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've encountered almost disbelief and like incredulity from white travelers to the South when they go down to Southern slave plantations or slave labor camps as as scholars are starting to call them so as not to romanticize the institution of slavery. So as they travel down South to these forced labor camps, they see this wide range of black religious practice and expression And they encounter African-Americans who don't have any religion, right? Who are openly skeptical of Christianity, of other forms of black religiosity, who are articulating uh, deist ideas and philosophical skepticism. And, you know, some of these people like the minister, uh, Reverend Charles Colcock Jones, who I discuss in the um, introduction to the book, uh, are wondering, like, wh- where did this come from, right? How are we seeing, like, Thomas Paine's deism down here on on these slave labor camps uh, in the South? And, you know, it is a, a kind of racist assumption that African Americans can only express ideas and religious affections through emotion, right? And they kind of stand outside of this enlightenment project and they stand outside of like western rationality right um so like i said unfortunately it's an idea that has been prominent among both the fiercest opponents of black equality and freedom and as well as uh, among uh, some of our allies too stepping back really quickly so the book is called black free thinkers and free thinkers kind of encompasses a lot of a variety of religious skepticisms. So what do you mean by free thinkers? Free thinkers I use as a really kind of umbrella term to include African-American atheists. So those who came out and said, I, I don't think there's a God at all. Uh, agnostics who were a little more cautious that their position was basically the same as atheism. They said, I don't think there's a God, but I can't say that with any like certainty, right? Um, but for all intents and purposes, atheists and agnostics are basically the same, right? But then you have other folks who do believe in some form of God, but it's a God that is like, it's kind of the God of the deists, right? Of the 18th century, this kind of clockmaker God who created the world to run according to natural laws and who's not really a providential force in human life that kind of intervenes in earthly affairs. So for all intents and purposes, there might as well not be a God, right? Like if you can't pray to this God, if this God isn't going to necessarily do anything different, then really it's more of a like impersonal force of nature, right? For me, deism was a way of people like Paine and some of the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, right? of being able to still claim that they believed in God, but really for all intents and purposes, they didn't, right? They believed in human capacity to influence affairs here on earth. So free thinkers also includes uh, people like Deists, right? And I think somebody like Frederick Douglass at certain points 
falls into that category um, of a deist. He, he moves back and forth between a lot of different uh, religious positions, but also pagans, right, who believe that, like, the earth is God and Mother Nature is God. And I get to uh, somebody who articulates that position in the afterword of the book, uh, namely the writer and, and Black woman intellectual Alice Walker. So Freethinkers really encompasses all of these different skeptical positions and very non-traditional religious positions that people at the time would have referred to very disparagingly and not necessarily included under the rubric of Christianity or, or even religion, even though they may have, like in the case of the deists, technically said that they believe in a god. So you bring up deism and the founding fathers in the way that that was what white free thinking looked like in early America. Uh-huh. And then you talk about the origins of black free thought, which is like it didn't come. It didn't uh-huh. transfer from one to the other. It really kind of arose through the hypocrisy of Christians owning slaves, really. Yeah. Deism was a movement that emerged in England during the late 17th century, grew in part out of some of the scientific and philosophical developments of of the early British Enlightenment. So it it started in uh, England and it very much influenced uh, colonial Americans and and revolutionary Americans like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and uh, Ethan Allen and, and some others. And it was largely a kind of literary and and intellectual movement, right? Like people would read the work of some of these English deists and and kind of reflect on those and accept it post-sale or maybe kind of put their own uh, spin on deism. But in the colonial and revolutionary eras, deism was largely a kind of philosophical movement among an educated and kind of literate class. And African Americans, because of the sort of oppressive nature of slavery and racism in the United States, especially in the Southern states, they were denied access to literacy, right? They were denied access to schooling. They could receive brutal physical punishments, including dismemberment, if they were caught reading a book. There were some Southern deists and there were Black people who could read and, and who got their hands on on some of those works. But by and large, they were kind of excluded from access to Enlightenment ideas, right? But nevertheless, we still see the presence of skepticism, atheism, and the like in slave communities. So where does it come from? Right. If they don't have access to these texts from philosophers and, and other deist thinkers and intellectuals, if, if they're not accessing these texts, where are they getting their ideas? Well, they're reflecting on their lived experience. They're reflecting on their reality. They're looking at the society around them. They're looking at how things work uh, on their slave labor camps uh, in the South. And they're thinking about people who tell them there's a God who created the world, who loves you and who wants you to be saved and go to heaven. They're kind of thinking about those theological ideas in relation to their everyday lived reality and coming to the conclusion that that those ideas they've been taught are false, right? That there is actually no God who loves me and who cares about me. Otherwise, my wife wouldn't have been sold away last week 
and my 12-year-old daughter wouldn't have been brutally whipped right in front of me and I couldn't do anything about it, right? Just to give an example of common occurrences uh, on these slave labor camps. So they're kind of reflecting on the brutality of the institution of slavery. They're also reflecting on what they see as the hypocrisy of their so-called uh, Christian masters who claim to be adherence to this religion that's about love, right? And treating your fellow human being as you would like to be treated and other such ideas, but are certainly not practicing those ideas. In fact, if they were practicing the ideas of Christianity, many Black people come to realize they wouldn't hold slaves in the first place, right? So that's another thing. There's this really poignant story I discuss in chapter one of an enslaved man in Virginia named Austin Stewart. He wrote an autobiography after gaining his freedom. And in that autobiography, he was reflecting on how on a Sabbath day, and he was very, you know, he, he mentioned this multiple times, three or four different times before he got into the story, just so you knew that this occurred on a holy day, on what should have been a holy day, according to the Christian religion. And his, his sister was hoisted up on a tree uh, tied up and whipped so, till she was bleeding from her back. On a day where they should have been going to church and, and praising the Lord, this was not happening on his slave labor camp, right? And that's an example of that kind of hypocrisy of Christianity that just started to turn some enslaved people away from the religion and away from believing God in general. Yeah. You talk about both the skepticism of enslaved Black people, but also free black people you mentioned frederick Douglass earlier but that's mm-hmm. kind of one of your prime examples of a free black person expressing religious skepticism yeah so for frederick Douglass, um like, like i said he was sort of all over the place uh, religiously so you know he was like a preacher to his fellow enslaved people uh, while he was in bondage and then uh, was sort of an exhorter at a methodist church in, in new bedford when he moved up north But he was also a great admirer of some, not necessarily religious skeptics, but I would say religious iconoclasts like Theodore Parker, who was one of the sort of main figures in the transcendentalist movement in New England, a movement that emerged out of and heavily critiqued uh, the Unitarian Church. And some of these transcendentalists were highly skeptical of kind of established church authorities, right? So in the case of Theodore Parker, he was pretty much blackballed by the Unitarian establishment around Boston. So Frederick Douglass, you know, attended Parker's church whenever he was in town, wrote admiringly about Parker, even gave a Theodore Parker lecture. So right now in the book I'm writing, I'm talking about him as as sort of a black transcendentalist. But at times he notes he was also uh, an atheist, right? And and that was a perspective that emerged in part out of his experiences in slavery. And in his 1845 narrative of an American slave, uh, the first autobiography that he published, it contains a number of kind of atheist and secular themes referring to a slave breaker, for example, as uh, a thief in the night uh, in a similar way to as, um, you know, Jesus is uh, referred to in the Bible, right? Also, he kind of strongly critiques American Christianity 
in his um, 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July, uh, and says that basically it would be better if you were an atheist and an opponent of slavery than somebody who was ardently Christian and, and highly religious, but refused to do anything on behalf of slaves. And here, like Theodore Parker, he was actually referencing some Unitarian ministers who were very conservative and critiquing them for their, basically for their inaction, right? So in a number of different writings um, in the antebellum period, he articulates these very strong critiques of Christianity, disbelief at times in God. And then at other times, like in a speech he gave in 1870 at the final meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society, he notes that he believes in God, but it's kind of like a deist position, right? He says, yeah, I'd like to thank God, but even more than that, I want to thank men because it's only through the actions of men and women that I can get any sense of God. And that's actually very similar to the deist position uh, on the kind of religion of nature, right? Where they believe that you can come to understand the sort of character and workings of God through an observation of nature, kind of trying to tie together science and religion, right? And Douglas is basically saying the same thing in that 1870s speech, right? That I can only understand God when I look at, at basically his handiwork, which effectively means that, you know, his God is not a providential force in human life, right? He's saying that God is not the one that freed the slaves God is not the one that we need to be thanking here. We need to be thanking those, you know, tens of thousands of enslaved people who ran away from their masters, joined the Union Army, and fought for their freedom, right? Because those are the people who really sort of moved history along. So, yeah, Frederick Douglass is a really, really significant uh, free thinker. And I don't necessarily claim that he was only a free thinker. Like I said, he. Uh, notes in his second autobiography published in 1855 that his religious opinions have ranged from what he terms the blackest atheism to the most ardent Christianity and most ardent devotion, right? So people aren't monoliths. They go back and forth with various beliefs throughout their lives, right? The black community itself is not monolithic in its religious practice and belief, and even individual black religious thinkers fluctuate in their devotion to particular religious ideas or acceptance of skeptical ideas. But I think, generally speaking, if you look at the body of writings of Douglas, we can pretty safely categorize him as a free thinker. What you were saying about nature and observing nature as kind of a fundamental part of deism, you mm-hmm. talk about post-emancipation into the Great Migration as Black people moved from rural areas into the North and into cities. Urbanization really drove religious skepticism in a lot of people, Black and white, just because of its distance from nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, You have the distance from nature. You also have the fact that a lot more people are around each other, a lot more than you know, smaller rural communities in the South. And there are also a lot more opportunities for access to higher education, right? So New York City is is certainly a case in point with, you know, free tuition available at City College of New York, 
throughout the 20th century, even Ivy League institutions like Columbia University starting to open uh, its doors to African-American students, right? So you have individuals like Langston Hughes, who grew up in Joplin, Missouri, smaller black community, very tight-knit, or Zora Neale Hurston growing up in Eatonville, Florida, where she was the daughter of, of the local minister, a. Philip Randolph also growing up uh, in Florida in a small, tight-knit Black community. Individuals like this, when they joined this great migration, which saw about a million and a half Black Southerners migrate to northern cities between 1915 and 1930, when these people moved to you know New York City uh, and other northern cities, they're not the sole Black skeptic right? They're not the only one who's doubting the existence of God or who doesn't believe altogether. Hurston writes in her autobiography, Dush Tracks on a Road, that she was incredibly fearful of mentioning her doubts and the questionings that she was having as early as like 12, 13 years old. And she specifically says, because she thought that this would ostracize her from her community, right? She thought people would look at her differently and, and treat her differently and would basically scorn her, right? And she was maybe also fearing like the repercussions from her own father, who you can imagine would not be wanting to raise an ungodly child in his house as a black minister, right? And as a leader in this community. But they don't have to worry about that as much when they're in an urban, more cosmopolitan space with people who have some of the same ideas that they do, right? And so you have this great kind of confluence of not only the great migration increasing the numbers of African Americans in northern cities, but also occurring around the same time as this kind of literary and cultural movement of the Harlem Renaissance, right? So, you know, many of the black atheist agnostics and, and other free thinkers of this time would kind of get to know each other through physical proximity in a place like Harlem, but also through a kind of shared intellectual proximity. W.E.B. Du Bois, another black free thinker and agnostic and a socialist, would open up the pages of the Crisis magazine, the organ of the NAACP, to publish the poems and essays and other writings of these black authors, right? So they're, they're kind of reading each other's works and starting to build more of a secular community that we would see happen a lot earlier among the white population, right? Wasn't as prevalent among blacks in the antebellum period, but would really start to form during the 1920s and 1930s. Something really interesting you talk about in the book, two different types of conversion narratives for religious skepticism, there's mm -hmm. education and exposure at a young age as one. And then there's the other one where they had like an unpleasant experience when they were young, where they yeah. were kind of forced into religion. And I kind of wanted you to give me like an example of each of those narratives. Yeah. So for somebody like Zora Neale Hurston, right? She is, like I mentioned, the daughter of a minister. Um, so very much enculturated into African-American religious traditions, starts to doubt, starts to question a bit at a young age, but doesn't necessarily have like that really negative experience with religion. Her 
move towards religious skepticism was more of an evolution that came about through her education and through her just contacts with people in the Harlem Renaissance. So she ends up in Harlem, but prior to that, she had actually moved first to Washington, D.C., where she briefly attended Howard University and there worked with philosopher Elaine Locke, who's widely known as the father of the Harlem Renaissance and who is a religious skeptic himself, an agnostic. So, you know, hers was kind of a gradual evolution from her early teenage years, uh, sort of up through her 20s and 30s, right? Till eventually, by the time she publishes her autobiography in 1942, she's a religious skeptic, right? Whereas somebody else, like Langston Hughes, right around the same age that Hurston started questioning he had a really unpleasant experience at a revival ceremony where he's like asking Jesus to come and he never shows up and he's wondering what's going on. And, and he just kind of sees behind, uh, he, he sees that or comes to believe that this whole notion of being saved in Christianity is kind of a facade, right? And that, that people are, are just kind of faking religious belief and they're faking that they've been saved. And so for him, he says in his own autobiography, published around the same time as Hurston, called entitled The Big C, he knows that that's, that's the moment where I just stopped, right? It wasn't kind of as gradual for him uh, as it was for Zora Neale Hurston. He's saying, you know, at, at 13 years old, I just stopped believing in Jesus, and, and that was it for me. And, and just a few years later, you can see this kind of disbelief in God's love and God's power and all of that coming through in uh, a number of his poems. Yeah, the mourner's bench, where there's this expectation that like people will pray over you, and then you'll have like a salvation experience. Yeah. But when that didn't happen for people, they became skeptical. And they really started to believe that if they didn't have that experience, maybe no one was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of a common theme throughout the book and one that I was sort of surprised to find happening again and again, right? So Langston Hughes has this kind of fake conversion narrative where the moment he's in a revival service on the mourner's bench and the community thinks that he's been saved, that's actually the moment where he kind of sees behind the veil and he's like, no, I don't believe in any of this, right? But that comes up for um, Langston Hughes it comes up for Richard Wright at a revival service in Mississippi. It comes up for James Foreman, also at a revival service in Mississippi, although probably 15 years or so later than Richard Wright. So this is something that happens again and again. And even James Baldwin has an experience that's kind of similar to theirs. It's not it's not exactly the same. It's not, um, he, he wasn't up on the mourner's bench or anything. He had actually been a preacher for three years by the time he had this like aha moment uh, about traditional religion and, and Christianity. So presumably maybe he had already had this conversion experience before becoming a preacher, although maybe not, right? Uh, maybe he just thought it'd be something interesting to do, even though he didn't actually have or wasn't saved. But he's 17 years old after having been a preacher for three years in Harlem, he says. And he just kind of realized that what he was doing was really empty and kind of devoid of meaning. And he was like preaching these ideas to these people and like 
figuring out ways to get the congregation worked up to, to give money and all of that. But he just realized in that moment that it's actually a lot more important to tell them to get up, get off of their knees and go organize a rent strike. So basically, stop thinking that a God is going to do something for you. Take responsibility for your own life and for improving your own world, which, of course, is a central uh, assumption of humanism right? That, that human beings are responsible for improving our own worlds and that we are capable of doing that using our powers of, of logic and rationality. While we're here, I want to talk more about some of the critiques of Christianity that people started to have. So some of the other critiques that we see emerging, especially in this period that we're talking about now, the Great Migration, Harlem Renaissance and the like, were similar to critiques in the antebellum period, namely that in the early 20th century, religion and segregation, as opposed to religion and slavery, were basically working hand in hand. And that ardent segregationists in both the North and South, KKK members and the like, were using Christianity to justify the sort of color line in America and to continue to argue that African Americans were not deserving of political or civil or human rights in this country. So that was one of the key critiques that Christianity continued to be a hypocritical religion that that was used to support black inequality in the nation. Another, and this came from a a number of different black free thinkers ranging from um, W.E.B. Du Bois to, to James Foreman to Zora Neale Hurston, argued that adherence to Christianity basically made people give up responsibility for improving their lives, for challenging racism, for all of that, because it was easy enough to pray to God, right? And to expect God to make these changes for you, as opposed to you joining an organization, raising money, doing all of the nitty gritty uh, hard work of organizing social and political movements. So that was another critique, that that Christianity basically induced a sort of political apathy uh, in African Americans and focused too much on the next world when we really needed to spend our energies focusing on, on this world. And then an even broader critique, and this came from African American socialists and communists, was that Not only was Christianity reinforcing segregation and the color line within the United States, but Christianity also was intimately tied into imperialism and colonialism to bring about the subjugation of Africans and African-descended peoples throughout the world, right? Kind of civilizing, quote-unquote, civilizing mission of some of these European nations and religious missionaries arguing that, oh, we need to go and take over these African countries so that we can bring the benefits uh, in the light of not only Christianity, but also in the case of socialists and communists, so that we can bring capitalism and uh, civilization uh, to these people, right? So I think those are, those are some of the key critiques that emerge. So since you mentioned socialism and communism, let's start moving that way. I think one of the first interesting things in that chapter of your book is that 
though like Marx was clearly not a religious person, was actually like very opposed to religion. In America, it didn't have to be non-religious by default. You have this part where you mentioned that like some people saw Jesus as the first communist Mm -hmm. promoting those ideals. Yeah, yeah, certainly. You had people like the African-American socialist Reverdy Ransom and a number of his followers, as well as adherence to the social gospel of Walter Rauschenbusch, who were basically able to kind of creatively combine a socialist politics with kind of Christian theology and Christian ethics, right? To argue that, you know, Jesus was against private property and the massive accumulation of wealth as evidenced by uh, him overturning the tables of the money changers uh, in the New Testament. And so, yeah, socialism for these group of people wasn't necessarily anti-religious, although for many of its adherents in Europe, that certainly was the case, right? And then some African-American thinkers would kind of follow along with those who are non-religious or even anti-religious, as was the case for many, especially communists, and kind of reject the ties between socialism and Christianity because, as folks like Hubert Harrison and Louise Thompson Patterson and Harry Haywood argued, Christianity was intimately tied in with capitalism, right? So if you're going to be against capitalism, right, and and for socialism, then you should also be against the religion that is it's very much connected to and that they kind of both feed off of one another. Another interesting aspect in this time period, the way that like you talked about a lot of people who were openly black free thinkers but still used the institution of the church to move their mm-hmm. platforms along. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is the case with a few different people I discussed, probably most notably A. Philip Randolph, who was a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church for like 50 years or something. But he's also a well-known agnostic and wasn't necessarily like hiding these ideas, right? So in, in the Messenger magazine, which began publication in 1919, him and his partner uh, Chandler Owen were very open about their critiques of religion and their secularism, right? So he is personally a non-believer, but he is also very interested in the welfare of Black people and in advancing their political and, and economic fortunes in the United States. And as a, as a pragmatic political organizer and activist, he knows that the church is often, you know, well, in places you black people can gather together, especially in Southern communities, right? So he was a member of the AME church and he often gave speeches and held organizing rallies and, and political meetings in black churches, as did later free thinkers during the period of the civil rights movement, like Stokely Carmichael, uh, especially in James Foreman, who I've already mentioned. These people realized that if you wanted to organize within black communities, churches were really essential because black sort of civil society in the South wasn't always 
developed enough to the point where you had a lot of secular institutions and secular kind of meeting places, right? And, and that's one of the things that, that kind of distinguishes Northern and Southern Black life, especially after the Great Migration, is you get this larger concentration of Black people leads to opportunities for the kind of proliferation of all different types of organizations. But you might go to smaller Southern communities and the only place you can get people together is in the church, right? People's houses aren't big enough to have a meeting of 100, 150 people. So African-American freethinkers were, especially those, and, and most of them were who were politically engaged and inactive, were pretty pragmatic people and, and recognized that they needed to meet those who they were trying to organize where they are, right? As opposed to trying to impose their views, their theological views on people when outside of theology, their lived reality and experiences were very similar, right? You also talk about that religious skepticism might have predisposed people towards communism and socialism in this period. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, it was no secret that socialists and, and communists were highly hostile to religion, right? In 1926, the Communist International, the Comintern, put out a directive to communists across the world saying that we, we expect you all to be atheists. Like, that's the default position. And you could basically be ejected from the Communist Party in the North if it was found out that you were going to church, right? And this is one of the things that ended up turning Richard Wright off from the Communist Party. He, When he moved up north from Mississippi to Chicago, he joined the communists, eventually abandoned them and became an existentialist. And he was very turned off by like the kind of group think uh, that communists seemed to force on people. To him, it was like no different from religion, right? Um, they, they were seemingly opposed to Christianity and to religion, but you had to believe what they believed and basically do what they said in order to be a communist. So yeah, I mean, you might have people who maybe didn't necessarily know much about the political ideology, but they were already skeptical from a young age, as was the case with Harry Haywood, who um, started to disbelieve in Christianity in his teenage years who were kind of already, uh, I, I say, predisposed or, or whatever, primed to join with other fellow freethinkers in a kind of newer political movement, at least newer to America. I want to talk about feminism, how women were involved in the freethinking movement and feminism within religious skepticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, feminism within religious skepticism really dates back to, to Frederick Douglass and, and his participation in women's rights conventions during the 1840s and 1850s as basically an extension of his like growing humanist philosophy. And we also see it expressed in uh, A. Philip Randolph's uh, Messenger magazine and them coming out strongly in support of women's suffrage in the very earliest issues of the magazine. Uh, so we see it from black male writers and, and black male freethinkers, but um, it's probably expressed most clearly and cogently in the writings, not surprisingly, of black women freethinkers, right? Like Nella Larson and Zora Neale Hurston, uh, because they have the kind of lived experience of having to deal with patriarchy and, and heteronormativity and, and the like. 
And they use their writings, both fictional and non-fictional, right? Nella Larson's novel, Quicksand, Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, but also some of Hurston's anthropological works, like of Mules and Men, uh, and her um, autobiography, to basically argue that Christianity is one of the main kind of supporters of patriarchy in the United States, but also uh, specifically within Black communities, and that by embracing secularism, you're also sort of embracing feminism and working to fight against uh, a religion that is oppressing women and specifically oppressing Black women in the United States. So really from the 1920s with the Messenger magazine and, and A. Philip Randolph through the writings of these Black women uh, novelists and intellectuals in the Harlem Renaissance, feminism would be kind of very closely tied in uh, with free thought up through the civil rights era. And you talk about with Black women, specifically during the like communist period, was that women could be leaders and they could like drop the idea of respectability for like radicalism through mm -hmm. communism and religious skepticism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you have uh, women like Louise Thompson Patterson, who was prominent in the Communist Party and was well respected as sort of an organizer and a leader in that space, whereas it would have been hard for her to gain that type of respect and notoriety in like a black male led organization. So it provides women like Louise Thompson Patterson or Elizabeth Hendrickson, another black communist intellectual, with leadership opportunities, uh, with opportunities to help organize people politically and just gain different experiences that they might not have been able to gain, right? And another key theme, of course, in some of their writings and speeches is pushing back against notions of what it means to be a proper Black woman, what Black people in general should do, this kind of politics of respectability that started in the 19th century saying, well, Black people need to be good Christians and good moral upstanding American citizens to show that they're worthy of equality. By the 1920s, you're getting Black women who are saying, look, we've been adhering to these like so-called proper standards of morality and respectability for decades, and all it's gotten us is like increased race riots and lynchings throughout the United States. It's not working, and we're not going to do this anymore, right? We're going to live our lives based upon our own values. The last chapter of your book gets into the Black Power movement, which was pretty openly secular. I mean, Marx was kind of required reading in the Black Panther Party. But mm -hmm. even before that, in the civil rights movement, you talk about like SNCC and James Foreman, who you've mentioned a couple times before, there was open opposition to the church, even in that period of the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there wasn't really any sort of sharp fall off in the sort of black secularism of the 1920s and 1930s. And in fact, many of these thinkers and, and intellectuals in, in Harlem and other cities were still alive and still around um, in the 1950s and 1960s. Maybe they weren't quite as prominent by the 50s and 60s as they'd been then at the beginning of uh, the Harlem Renaissance, but they were still around sort of influencing people, still giving speeches, still writing. 
And what would happen is you'd start to see this older generation begin to sort of influence the new and younger generation that would come of age during the civil rights movement. So yeah, you're right. We know that uh, we've long known that leaders of the black power movement were secular and, and hostile to Christianity, but so too were leaders of traditional civil rights organizations like SNCC, right? Especially Stokely Carmichael and James Foreman, who kind of joined up with SNCC when it was a very traditional civil rights organization uh, committed to Satyagraha, the philosophy of nonviolence, and basically Christian in orientation, right? Even though they individually were not. But they would kind of help transition some of these organizations away from those more traditional positions into an embrace of Black power and then start to play important roles in the founding of the Black Panther Party. And super interestingly, out of that secular Black power movement comes a religious response, the Black theology of liberation. Right around the same time that Black power uh, emerged as a kind of coherent political philosophy and uh, around the same time that the Black Panther Party was formed, you started to get Black ministers and, and theologians begin to articulate what they called the Black theology of liberation, which included a number of, of different elements, but most key to it were the um, notion that God is uh, what they would say ontologically Black, right? Not that God is a physical Black person or a Black spirit, but that God basically identifies with Black people. God is a God of the oppressed. And we see in the Bible, he led the Israelites out of slavery, and he's going to do the same thing for us, right? In a way, they also sort of kind of adhere to or accepted some of the kind of critiques of Black freethinkers from the 20s and 30s up through the 60s. Uh, these critiques saying that like Black people were sort of apathetic, also that God was God was sort of racist, right? God only cared about white people. And they're trying to, to basically push back against um, some of that, while at the same time, they're accepting some of the critiques that religion has led to apathy, right? And saying that, no, look, uh, what we need to do is kind of shift our perspective of God and of Christianity and that's actually going to lead to greater involvement and engagement in this emerging black power movement. So in one sense, it's, it's a highly religious movement led by black ministers and theologians, like I said, but one that in part kind of took seriously some of the concerns and critiques of black secular thinkers. But then you'd have black free thinkers like William R. Jones kind of push back against the theology of liberation and say, look, let's be real. If we're looking at American history, if we're looking at the history of the world, there's no way that God is ontologically black, right? It's pretty clear that if there is a God, he doesn't care about us. And he stated all this in his book titled, Is God a White Racist? Right? A preamble to black theology. Um, so you have that, that kind of back and forth, right? And then following that, the development of womanist theology, which sort of was a critique of the black theology of uh, liberation and its kind of overly male, black male orientation, right? So 
black women theologians like the Reverend Katie Cannon uh, would, you know, kind of try to include black women's concerns within black theology, right? But even, even womanist theology, just like the black theology of liberation kind of grew in part out of some critiques of black free thinkers, womanist theology took its title from womanism, which came from uh, the black secular thinker Alice Walker, who coined the term in, in her book, In Search of Our Mother's Gardens, right? And for Walker, womanism was more humanist in, in orientation rather than religious, but it kind of, it lent itself to sort of adaptation in this kind of newer womanist theological movement. And last thing, let's talk about how this all ties to the present, because Black free thinking is still a thing, and in the turn from the 20th to the 21st century, it has only become more of an institution. And then taking things up to the present, you know, Alice Walker is somebody who really spans courses is still with us and, and still doing her thing. In 1996, she was awarded the Humanist of the Year Award by the American Humanist Association. And she was the second African-American so honored. The first one was A. Philip Randolph, who received that honor in the early 1970s. And that honor kind of speaks to the growing significance of secularism and free thought among African-Americans in the post-civil rights period, right? And this is actually going to be the subject of another book, basically taking the story of Black secularism from 1975 up through 2020. So I've been working on that. And so what we see in the post-civil rights era is kind of an institutionalization of Black free thought, uh, right, with the creation of groups like African Americans for Humanism in 1989, uh, Black Atheists of America in 2011, and the same year, Black Nonbelievers Incorporated, as well as local groups, right? Black Skeptics of Los Angeles uh, was created in, in the past decade by Sakivu Hutchinson, not a national organization, but a group that's doing really important work uh, within the greater uh, Los Angeles community, has even established a scholarship for Black and Latinx young humanists to go to college. Um, so we see this institutionalization and even just kind of greater acceptance, if you will, um, and prevalence of secularism within Black popular culture, within Black culture in general. Yeah, it is a story that comes straight through today. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you. I might have to call on you again when that other book comes out to talk yeah. about these last I guess the 70s would be 50 years mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. Black secularism. Thanks for listening. I'll have another new episode for you soon. All power to all people, y'all. Yeah.